0: it's the growing for market podcast
1: that's kind of our audience is people who are being deliberate about agriculture. And we need to be, because if we just take the thing that's most expedient or the cheapest, we may not like what we get. In the first part of this interview, we talked about the standard American diet. I hear people say like, you know, the United States, we've got the cheapest food in the world. Secondly, maybe, but it's all subsidized and it's terrible and it's making people sick. So probably most of the people listening to the podcast are deliberate farmers. They're probably farming the way they have because either it's the way they enjoy or kind of like me when I realized what was sprayed all over all the food, realized that there's some really bad things going on in sort of the conventional ways that things are done. So if you're listening to this podcast, that's probably bravo to you. Probably means you're being a deliberate farmer. It's so important because we are diminishing the capacity of the planet to keep supporting us. And so it's only going to take deliberate thinking about how to do this right to remedy that.
0: Hello and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about all things market farming related. I'm Katie Kula, your host and a writer for Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the magazine for vegetable and flower farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. Also, if you could give us a follow and a rating, it really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. In a few minutes, we'll take a break from the interview and talk about farm tools with Connor of Never Sync Farm. We will be chatting about new tools, old tools, how they can benefit your farm and tips to use them successfully. Never Sync Farm makes this podcast happen with their generous support so it can come to you for free. And we think there's no better sponsor for a podcast by farmers, for farmers, than Never Sync Farm where the tools are designed and made by farmers. So check them out at neversinktools.com. We are back again today with Andrew Mefford, Growing for Markets editor and publisher to follow up with part two of getting to know him. Last time we went in depth into Andrew's early years and journey to farming. Today, we're going to dive into more about his main farm, the purchase of Growing for Market Magazine, plus some of his books, and eventually even the development of this podcast you're listening to. So thanks for joining me again, Andrew. Let's pick back up where we paused. I'd like to hear more about your main farm and what you and Anne were working on there, while you were also busy working at johnny's i guess i'm wondering was this a typical direct market vegetable farm what were your outlets and how were you balancing that work while also working full-time at johnny's i that kind of blows my mind how you how you managed to do that so what did that all look like in those years
1: it wasn't balanced. <laughs> oh,
2: there okay. was no there balance
1: is, is, is what I can say about that. So I think like a lot of young farmers, we were just all in on our business. And probably a lot of young business people are, are business. Probably anybody at any age starting a business just because you you think that's the entrepreneurial thing is that you, if you're going to start this business, you got to got to commit, you know, unless you're independently wealthy or something and can just take the failure of a business, considering that we had, you know, worked for years on other people's farms, gaining Mostly the knowledge because those jobs were apprenticeships and they they weren't paying very much money. We learned a ton of information and we always got paid when we were apprentices, but definitely sort of like room and board. It was what I think of as a typical apprentice situation, but I I realized that there's all different kind of apprentice experiences. So it was the kind of thing where we were being paid in money, probably less than minimum wage if I went back and calculated it, but in exchange for a place to stay, typically all the produce or products of the farm that we could eat and, and all, all that knowledge. And so it, at least in our case, I, it was a fair trade. We worked on places where we gained what I feel like was a wealth of knowledge, which is what we used to, to start our farm. But back to your question about how we were balancing it, it, it was not balanced. So, you know, it's, it's something I think about, Katie, f- sort of we talked about in the, the interviews that we did, you know, talking about farming and parenting. These are all things that are hard to balance and it's easy to get unbalanced. So it's been a really interesting journey. But looking back on it, we were not very balanced.
0: <laughs> so would you just come home and go right to work on the farm? Is that what would happen or, and like work for hours?
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So back to how we were balancing me working full-time for Johnny's and getting our farm up and running again. In a way, we needed those two things just because we had started our farm in Pennsylvania thinking that's where we were going to live for the rest of our lives. That land became unavailable to us, right? And so we didn't save money in case we get kicked off of our farm, right? And so we just had to kind of turn around And, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to land on our feet after a couple more years of apprenticing, but we didn't have a lot of money saved up to live off of or anything. In fact, I mean, our plan when we moved up here was not that I would get a job at Johnny's. Our plan when we moved up here was that we would both just work full time on the farm. But then we, as I explained in the previous interview, we ended up just serendipitously moving half an hour away from the Johnny's research farm then like a lot of farmers up here ended up working for Johnny's in the winter and they just ended up they just happened to fire their tomato guy the year you know that I was working there and I'm a big tomato nerd so it just seemed like it made a lot of sense and then i think it was even more critical after the year that that we had because i think i mentioned this in in our our first part of our interview that the first year that we were up here ended up being a really bad year for late plate. Right. Which is not usually a, a big problem up here in the northeast. And it not only ours, but a lot of growers in our area just decimated their tomato crops. Like no tomatoes, because it, it set in around the time that the tomatoes are starting to ripen. And there that, that may be a phenomenon as well, is that because ripening the fruit, it takes an extra effort by the plant to make those sugars that to go into the fruit, that was why everybody likes them. The plant may be working extra hard at that time. So I think part of it was timing. The late blight blew in super early for here in the Northeast and around the time that our our plants were trying to ripen those first fruit. So, in retrospect, I think that if I hadn't already had a job at Johnny's during that first season, I think the season would have been a disaster for us and would have probably had to get some kind of an off-farm job that winter just to pay the bills and everything like that. So in retrospect, I'm really glad it was Johnny's just because it, then it was something where I could at least work in my field. It was fascinating. I continued to learn a lot. In fact, I attribute getting into greenhouses so much into combination of moving from Pennsylvania to Maine and working at Johnny's because- think the main thing is we, you know, we moved from a place where you could grow tomatoes reliably in the field to a place where I would say, I don't think it's worth growing large fruited tomatoes in the field in Maine, just because if you compare how much work you have to put into growing the plants versus how much yield you're going to get, I don't think it's commercially viable. And that's also what I've seen is that most of the growers around us have transitioned from field production of large fruited tomatoes to, to green, you know, hoop house, greenhouse production.
0: That's how it was up in Bellingham where we trained too. And I don't, maybe some people still would grow tomatoes outside. Maybe some determinate varieties, the shorter season ones, but being that far north in that slightly cooler climate, if we wanted to have ripe tomatoes with any kind of season, for sure you're in a high tunnel or hoop house of some kind. I think that's becoming more and more the norm. So- Were you going to markets or did you have a CSA? How did you guys set up and it was a vegetable farm? Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. We were pretty focused on vegetables. I like flowers a lot in the, the early days. In fact, when we were in Pennsylvania, we planted some flowers, but we just found it easier to just specialize. And so we did farmers markets and over the, you know, we did a few different things. We always did farmers markets. In fact, We live just north of a town of about 10,000 people called Skowhegan, and so we are lucky enough that first year that we were growing there, we got into the farmer's market the first year, which was not a guarantee. It was the kind of situation where sometimes there were more growers than the market could really support. And so we were we were very lucky to get in. But we had actually scouted Skowhegan a little bit because we were apprenticing in Maine before we moved there. The town that we live north of actually has a lot going on for local foods, more than you would think for a town of 10,000 in the Maine woods. And the county jail, until we moved here about 15 years ago, was still a Civil War era building. I mean, it was like Gothic. And so they finally built a new county jail and so Amber lambke bought the jail and turned it into a grist mill oh, because um, there used to be a big tradition there used to be tons of small mills all over Maine and northern Maine in particular is a big potato growing area and so you would have more local milling and those pretty much all got put out of business and so we have this this great business in town that really, I don't think they call it a food hub, but it basically functions as a food hub because they have a mill that is main-grown grains. They also had a multi-farm CSA that we sold to because we we always thought about doing a csa but we just we didn't want to be on the hook we felt like it's such a big commitment i mean you you know this katie you Mm -hmm. you've run a csa farm we felt like it was such a big commitment and especially since we are brand new to the state we didn't want to just like the first year be like oh yeah we know like we're totally give you everything all year round like before we'd even figured out the climate and everything that was smart (laughs) Yeah, I think that I think that was a good decision. And then there's all the stuff like you did, you know, writing newsletters and all, all this extra stuff. And so. Just with with yeah, me having a full time job, there just wasn't wasn't the time, and so they also have now that same place, this renovated old jail. Oh, they also have a local foods restaurant now. It's almost like a, a local food hub, and then we also sold to what I call local wholesaling. So we we had there was a local foods, some local food stores and sort of like health food stores and places like that. So it was farmers markets. We were participants in a multi-farm CSA, and so we kind of specialized in the things that we felt like we did well. We were did, did like tomatoes, uh, tomatoes and cucumbers and greens and stuff like that.
0: You had to do the tomatoes.
1: Well, in fact, that was one thing. When we were, we had scouted this place that we moved to, you know, we live in this tiny little town called Cornville, which is north of this slightly larger town called Skowhegan. And when we had been to the farmer's market, I mean, we, we are fairly strategic about it because mm-hmm. we were already in state. We, at that point, we knew we had to move. So we, we had visited the farmer's market and we saw how even in the summer, there were hardly any tomatoes. And so we were like, that's one of the things that we told them when we applied and ended up getting in is that, you know, we could really like, think we could bring a lot more in the way of tomatoes. So we did, we did all those things and so one of the things that Annie is really good at is plant care, is seedling care as I should say. So a seedling sale has always been an important part of our business in that in fact that's that's really how what she's chosen to focus on is the nursery because she's really good at you know like germinating finicky to germinate plants and then babying them through those those early stages and and she's just really good at at seedling care which i'll say is, is not my forte like i don't love having all these little plants that are so fragile where you know like if you forget to water them for 24 hours they're gonna die yeah So, I mean, it's interesting. I would say that's maybe one way that my wife and I complement each other agriculturally is because she's really good at the seedling care. And I like doing greenhouse work, which is funny because she says it's like orchard work. OK, because we, we have some friends who have a really amazing orchard up here with a lot of heritage apples. And, you know, like if you have an orchard, that's what you're going to be out there doing its pruning up all the trees and stuff like that. So I would rather take care of like a huge 20 foot long tomato plant that you could hardly kill if you wanted to other than. There's plenty of pathogens that would like to in in freezing up here, but I'd rather just do the same thing. Like it gives me a feeling of just sort of like I've set the world right when I can go into a greenhouse and granted, I do the same thing on every plant, taking leaves off of every plant, cluster pruning off of every plant or whatever. But it makes me feel like I go in there, it just kind of get in a rhythm. And when I'm done, I feel like, okay, I've, I've like done my job. I've, I've set things right, at least in this little tiny greenhouse world. So I'd say that's one way that, that we complement each other because she doesn't like orchard work. She can do all that stuff. It's just like when we split out what we'd like to do, she's really good at seedling plant care. I think I'm pretty good at, at greenhouse plant care and it's what I enjoy. So But, you know, looking back on that, it wasn't we were not balanced. And and I think that's it's worth saying, because I I feel like that's one of the most common mistakes that I see young farmers making is just taking on too much and overstretching themselves and getting burned out. And I'll say I'm coming off a period of being really burned out after doing all the farm work and writing three books in a row was not a good idea for personal sustainability for maintaining relationships and all that kind of stuff and i I feel like that is what i see a lot of young farmers and even like you know i see a lot of people that are my age when i was doing that doing that now and i I don't want to say anything to these people because i feel like you know they're chasing their dream they're like i'm gonna start a business and have a couple kids and We'll also get a pony and, you know, like and do some volunteer opportunities. It's like it's a catch 22 because you see people with great ideas. You know, they want to start these like local food businesses and farms and things like that. But I see myself like I guess I'm old enough now to be able to like you young whippersnappers. Are, yeah, <laughs> like see see the mistakes that I made as a young person, because I think we just spread ourselves too thin. In fact, Chris Blanchard, unfortunately, it's so sad that he he passed away because he is such a great guy. But shortly before he died, I actually got to see him speak at the Moses conference in the Midwest and the the PASA conference in Pennsylvania. And he was doing this speech at the time, like talking about this, talking about how young farmers spread themselves too thin. And so I feel like, you know, that's something from my own experience, like what's the point of talking about all this stuff? Yeah, to get to know me, but I think just like anything in growing for market, the real point is to have something to pass on that's gonna help other people. And so I wanna say to people, Pace yourselves. I feel like this is something that was maybe my biggest mistake as a young farmer that I think happens all the time is that people just spread themselves too thin. And so what I would say to people is figure out what's paying the bills on your farm and double down on that. And once you're in the black and have that down, then move on to all the other enterprises.
0: And now let's talk farm tools with Connor of Never Sink Farm, our collaborator on this podcast. Hey, Connor. So this shop top is going to run sometime mid-summer, which is a time when, at least on our farm, we are often sowing the brassicas that we're going to be planting for fall and winter. So it's still a seeding time for us in our greenhouse. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you all do at NeverSync to ensure great germination when you're seeding stuff.
2: You know, we get a lot of this question at tools because we sell trays. So, you know, so I get about germination, what's going on. And essentially germination is about moisture and temperature. There's a few crops which require a little bit of lights and flowers, there's some that need to be cold treated. But those are rare, so like essentially, most are going to be just temperature and moisture. And you know, we had trouble when we started out; we didn't have water in the, in the prop house. I had to drag a hose from the kitchen uh, out there on the days when it was uh, warm enough. But having really nice water in your prop house, having sprinklers, having fog misters, all of that stuff. And checking on it constantly is, I think, key. You certainly don't want to overwater, underwater, but when it comes to germinating, you're really just talking about just that top layer. So if you don't have a germination chamber or anything like that, then it's just about keeping it. Cause all you have to do has, you know, you know, this just dries out for an afternoon. And that could be it. Uh, all your germination is lost. And. You know, I have a set-size prop house, and I want every single tray to go because if I get half germination, I just wasted all that space, and it stinks. You can't double the trays around. It's no fun.
1: You know, we eventually moved
2: to a germ – are you using a germ chamber at your farm?
0: We don't, yeah. So germination is something we always have to be really conscious of, babysitting our flats pretty carefully.
2: yeah. So the germ chamber helped a lot. It was completely worth the investment because it monitors temperature and moisture. That's all it does. It creates temperature through steam and then it just turns it on and off by heating the water based on a thermometer. But, you know, in your prop house, if you don't have that, the next thing is going to be heat. So obviously for something that it's cooler temperatures, and in summer, like lettuce and spinach, we throw those into the barn. And, out in, um, and in early spring, we, uh, for the germ table, we used our heated tables or heating mats to do it. But if you get those two things right, heating and moisture, you get 100% germination every time. It's easy to say. Obviously, harder to do when, it, when you have a million things to do. But we go into the prop house, like, at least twice a day, every day, to check on everything, to make sure things are are working really well.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Connor, and happy seating, everybody. And now, back to the show.
1: To explain that in our context, the thing that changed from our, our farm in Pennsylvania to our farm in Maine is that we wanted to have animals, both partially to sort of like close the circle of inputs on the farm, right? Because in Pennsylvania, I was driving to go get manure and compost and stuff like that. And I was like, we could just have animals pooping here. And so not only the fertility aspect, but we wanted to add all that stuff in. And so the apprenticeships that we did between when we had to leave our farm in Pennsylvania and when we started our farm in Maine all, all had animal aspects. We did almost all the common livestock on the apprenticeships between when we... We're in Pennsylvania and in Maine. We worked with breeding pigs. We worked with breeding sheep. We worked with chickens for eggs and for meat, processed turkeys. In fact, um, I mean, we were and continue to be concerned about climate change and our impact on all that to the point where we worked on farms that had horses for two years thinking, in fact, we even bought all this horse equipment because it was going for nothing. We called it uh, liberating yard art. (laughs) Totally. We
0: have a lot of that in our area too. The old hand. Yeah. The hand like driven horse implements. There are definitely some yard art in our area. Yeah. But so how did that work with doing the animals and the vegetables? Because you're talking about balanced. Was this maybe the too much doing all of
1: that or- Exactly. It was, that's why it was unbalanced. I would Uh not recommend it to anybody. I think in a way we did what we had to do, but if I could go back and talk to myself at that time, I would give myself the advice that I just, just tried to give to our our audience. I would say, just focus on the vegetables then. Exactly. Is because that's what we were really good at. That's how we started our farm in Pennsylvania was just, just vegetables. And so, because then when we started over in Maine, we actually never really got underway with animal power because we already had a tractor from our, our farm in Pennsylvania. Although we, we bought a team of oxen. Uh, really? Yeah, because it's okay. It's I don't know if it's something up here in the Northeast, but it's something kids still do for 4-H projects up here. So we bought a young team of oxen wow. that had been reared and really well trained by a high school age girl for her 4-H project. Did you ever use them? Not very much. That was part of the problem. Is that we had all these other things. You know, it's like we had the vegetables that we had to keep going. And then in our the early years of our farm here in Maine, we would have a few pigs. You know, we never bred them, but we would get them. And we, I mean, we sold a fair amount of meat. It's like that's my impression is looking back. We were such a diversified farm, which in in theory is great, but it meant we were spread so thin. I mean, I remember having this conversation with with Annie when we were thinking about having kids and. Literally saying, "Hmm, we're not going to be able to work all the time when we have kids. We're going to have to do something else." Yeah. You know, I mean, that's really where we are. I mean, it was really like you know, we are trying to manifest our vision of what a, a, sm- a small diversified farm would be, right? We got your vegetables. We've got eggs. Right. You know, we've got bacon. We've got, you know, we've got, you know, mutton. And hey, we even have a team of oxen. And so that, that's what happened is that in part of our thought was that with, with oxen, because we've worked with horses a fair amount. Like I can drive a team of horses, like I can do horse work, but horses get rusty really quickly. And so between the fact that we already had a tractor, we were thinking like, we, and, but we still wanted to incorporate animal power into our farm some way. That's why we were like, well, let's we'll buy a, a team of oxen because everybody told us that oxen. Would get sort of like get rusty less quickly. Like you could sort of like leave them for more extended periods of time without them getting sassy and forgetting what they're supposed to do. But we were spread so thin. I I mean, I feel like I got the oxen out a few times. Oh, we had a milk cow that I would milk by hand. Yeah. Right. It's like we had everything, but it was it was too much because we couldn't do any of it well. And so that's my. So I feel like I'm. You know, when when I talk to younger farmers. I feel like I'm crushing their dreams when I'm like, no.
0: <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like it, Andrew. Although I know what you're trying to say, you know, but it's also, <laughs> it's it, there is also an element. I, I feel like I'm of the age too, where I talk with people who, have, who are starting businesses for the first time or something, and they have all these dreams and energy. Whereas I'm at a stage in life where I'm with you. I'm like, I need to find the things I'm really good at, or my husband's really good at and lean into those and carve out space for things like rest or to you know time with our kids but maybe there's some element where when you're young that's kind of what you have to do to figure out what those things are but it's probably also useful for people to know that that's what they're doing that they're not necessarily setting in motion something that in of itself will be sustainable but if you don't ever have animals on your farm how will you know whether that's well suited to your place and you as a person I don't know it would I go back and do it differently cuz you know we also had similar things on our farm with experimenting with having a lot of enterprises and I would totally do it differently going back because we sure did learn a lot. And I've seen other farms go the other way. There was a farm near us that just sold actually, but they were in operation almost the exact same time as us. And they started with animals and got really good at that like the raw milk and chickens. that was sort of their specialty. And then at some point they were like, oh well, we should have a CSA too. <laughs> and for a couple <laughs> years they had a, for a couple years they had a CSA and then they were like, Yeah, too much. But they found that they still really love doing the animals, right? So it's, I don't know, there is a certain exploratory process, but it sounds like yours was exhausting. And I also want to note, too, that you are not unique in having a full-time job off the farm. Statistically, that is the most common experience for farms today is that one or both, if you have a couple running a farm, have at least some off-farm job. So balancing that is a reality for a lot of new farmers.
1: That's a really good point, is a a lot of... not even small farmers. I mean, I was reading the other day, like people, big grain farms and stuff need some off farm income. And so I just feel lucky that I was able to work at a place that was in my passion and I could work, I could learn so much about. In fact, what I used to tell people about my job at Johnny's is that a lot of my time was spent either at the Johnny's trial field, looking at new varieties or going to breeders their like trial fields or going to universities or something like that and looking at new varieties out in the field. And so I told people when I was looking at a variety and thought like, I want to grow that. Right. I thought it's probably, probably means it's a good one for, say, the Johnny's catalog. Cause I mean, that's, I mean, I think it's a pretty similar process now as to how it was there. It's it's probably most seed companies do some version of this of trials and evaluations. Although I'll say, I mean, Johnny's is very extensive. They try to grow every single variety that they may pick from before adding it. And so by try to grow, I mean like 99.9% of the time. Like,
0: yeah, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the way it should be. The only times that I saw varieties get added sight unseen, like without a, without being trialed was when there was a crop failure or something like that. Right. Right. Cause occasionally they'd be like the Nantes type carrot uh, production fell through. We'll just, we'll have to source something at something else. And so that was really good. So yeah, the income helped a lot. I also learned a lot that I could put to use on our farm. And I mean, I attribute moving to Maine... As that's why I was getting into greenhouses, but it was it was it actually paralleled, I think, what was going on in the country, perhaps because of those equip grants. Yeah, uh, people, I think they're still going on, actually. Yeah, because at the same time that I was really nerding out on greenhouse stuff because of my own farm needs to grow tomatoes in this short climate up here, we were seeing an explosion of interest in greenhouse growing, which we could gauge at Johnny's because of seed sales. Right? Like like greenhouse varieties were just blowing up.
0: That program is the e- equipped that's through the NRCS, is that right? So you would so if there's farmers who don't know about this, there's funds for improvements on your farms that move your farm towards sustainability. And greenhouses have been identified as something that moves farms towards sustainability. So people would reach out to their local soil water conservation office. Is that who they'd approach? off the top of my head about applying for these grants basically they'll pay for a greenhouse which is yeah. pretty awesome we know quite a lot of people who have done this and because those are big investments that aren't always easy for a farm to do and there are some strings attached of course as there always are with free money but i think pretty easy strings did you ever work with that program on your farm or did you just put up a greenhouses because you loved them and you wanted them
1: We just put up greenhouses because we loved them and wanted them. I mean, that's another conversation I remember having is both, not only did we want to have tomatoes, but also being like, well... Looks like everybody else that so we know who's making money in farming and has greenhouses, so we should probably build some. And that was early in my development. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the NRCS program, Katie, because if people don't know about that, it is a great opportunity for... I don't think they even have to be sort of like beginning farmers. I think dip in a state by state, because I know different, different states have different numbers of greenhouses that they can fund and different criteria. But yeah, definitely if you think that a greenhouse... But would improve the production on your farm, approach your local NRCS, so Natural Resource Conservation Service, because the program is ongoing.
0: And if you don't know how to get a hold of them, talk to your extension agency or your soil water conservation district or your NRCS. Any of them will be able to connect you to the right people. Or even ask your organic certifier. They'll probably know who to call to in your area. Because I think finding the actual person to connect with in your area might be tricky at first.
1: Yeah. But yeah, it's a a great way to get a greenhouse that's not a lot of strings and and more or less paid for. So I I mean, honestly, another thing I realized that through that process is I'm more of a plant person than an animal person. So I mean, a big part of that is I was in farming to make money and not like obviously not get rich, but we wanted to have a farm business. Mm -hmm. In order to have a farm business, you have to be in the black, right? And so in principle, I liked all of it. But I guess when push came to shove, And for example, we're losing money on eggs. I was like, well, it's not a hard decision for me. If it's between having eggs and losing money and potentially going out of business or not having eggs, I'd rather have the business than the eggs. Right. And so, I mean, and that's the situation we found ourselves in, you know, like we moved in here, plucky young people, plenty of people told us of like, Oh, other people have tried to do organic eggs. And so it's, it's worth mentioning, you know, we are certified organic the whole time. And so people were like, Oh, so many people have tried to do organic eggs and nobody could do it. We were just young. you were like, well, we're going to be the ones that you're going to show the world. Yeah. And, it didn't end well. We didn't end up being the ones. And so one thing we're in such a rural area, we're the kind of place where you, you know, you drive up and down the state highways around here and people, yeah, there's those signs out by the road, like natural eggs, $2 and 50 cents. And so I think it really makes it hard because people around here, I think they're like, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, what does natural mean, but that probably has as much, if not more value, or I guess just them being local. I think people are like, great, I can get local eggs mm-hmm. for 250 where it's really someone's. More like a hobby, you know, they have a few extra chickens and are are putting them out because, I mean, we tried all the strategies for making, like, say that business in particular, eggs work. And we, at one point we had 300 hens, you know, we would have them basically in a hoop, we called it the hoop coop, you know, we would keep them, we built a a little greenhouse with a Johnny's hoop bender, you know, so we built, we built a greenhouse that we kept them in for the wintertime because it's so cold up here and we couldn't afford to build a, you know, like a proper chicken coop. But I mean that was actually great. They got t- they were happy. We joked they were like at the beach, you know, in the wintertime because they would dig down in all their wood chips and like sun themselves and have a great time. But we had them in a greenhouse over the winter and then we had a movable a movable hen mobile that could accommodate 300 hens. We tried raising prices, you know, until we got our, I think we got our prices for a dozen up to five or $6 a dozen. And then demand started dropping off. We tried to just buy in bulk. You know, we, we installed a, a, I want to call it a silo, but you know, like a big feed feed container that could hold two or three tons of feed at a time and just meter it out the bottom. We bought one of those so we could buy feed in bulk and nothing you know, at the end of all that, we are still losing money on chickens. And so that's, you know, we still like to have a few chickens, but you know, that business didn't end up making sense. And I mean, like the sheep, you know, we did the whole rotational grazing thing with, with the Electronet fencing, we had to move them every single day. I mean, I remember being out in that field, moving sheep, looking up the hill at my greenhouse, being like, that's where I should be. Yeah. Because like, I don't think Americans have a huge appetite for mutton or lamb and all that kind of thing. And so they just didn't want it very much. And so I was like, why am I taking my time tending these creatures that we're, you know, losing money on when I could be up the hill doing the thing that I like doing that actually makes money? And so
0: I'm eating lamb for dinner tonight. Just so you know, Andrew.
1: (laughs) Good good for you.
0: But we also used to keep sheep and I I fell in love with it. But I but I agree that it's hard to sell because it's you have to price it so much higher because you get so much less meat per animal. And I think that's maybe even more the bigger issue with that product than compared to beef, for example. But so you did you so you had this stark moment of like, I'm here but I should be there?
1: Yeah. Well, then the the other thing as far as, you know, crushing young farmers dreams uh, while we're at it, is it you have to like if you're going to be in business as a farmer, you have to to think about what the market wants. Okay, Mm -hmm. And so you may love sheep, but if there's no market for it. If people don't, you know, if there's not the demand at the price point that you're, you're offering, you know, it's it's not going to be a viable business. So I'd say have some sheep for yourself and grow the things. I mean, yeah, Americans have appetites for, I mean, I mean, and markets really differ. That was an interesting thing. When we were running our farm before in Pennsylvania, we like to say it was sort of like a, a city suburban market. You know, we like to say people like the weird stuff. They like the weird looking tomatoes, They like the orange eggplant. They like the curly exotic cucumbers and stuff like that, right? And so when we move to Maine, we say, you know, up here, people like their potatoes, white, their tomatoes, red. And the cucumbers straighten that look like slicers, right? And so that's just a realistic thing is that anybody who's trying to run a farm business has to take into consideration what their market actually wants to buy and, and what what the price point is. Because you know, you're know you not going to stay in a business if you're not selling what pe- people want to buy at the price yeah. that they want to pay for it. So not to crush everybody's dreams, but people need to think about if they want to grow orange eggplant, like are they in a market that wants to buy things that they're going to consider exotic like yeah you may be you know if you're around a big city or have access to a market that's used to cooking with that kind of thing great go nuts but you know don't be surprised if a lot of places don't want that kind of thing and so we actually i mean for us that changed the varieties we grew right we went from we still grew heirloom tomatoes because but we grew a lot more red tomatoes because like i remember i think it was when we were in pennsylvania we grew we were very taken with heirloom tomatoes and grew almost heirlooms i remember one customer being like don't you just have any red tomatoes? And it realized like it's, we're not growing for ourselves anymore. We're growing for our markets or like another example is orange tomatoes. I find orange and yellow tomatoes, pretty bland and kind of boring. You know, one thing I know from b- being married is that I'm, a, I'm an undertaster, I guess, which actually may have helped to taste all those vegetables when that was my job. But I realized that for people who are sensitive to acidic foods, yellow tomatoes and orange tomatoes, right? I mean, so there's a, kind of a correlation is that those light, you probably know this, Katie, but for our our audience, the lighter colored tomatoes tend to be also lower in acid, right? And so that's why the reds and those like, you know, the black tomatoes, black heirloom tomatoes tend to be, I think of them as very high flavor, high acid. That's my kind of tomato. But I realized, you know, it made me realize from selling produce to people, not everybody has my palate. And so there might be people who are very sensitive to acidic foods that Love a yet what I consider a bland yellow or orange tomato or something like that. So you know, it made me realize we're not just growing for for ourselves anymore.
0: So okay, I want to make sure we talk about a couple other things, but I do have to ask you, what are your favorite varieties of tomatoes to still grow? And so at this point, are you? I don't want to get ahead, but at some point in the mix here, you bought the magazine, right? So your work really shifted. And so now your farm looks really different. And I know that your wife is still doing the commercial seedling, but you're you're not going to market or anymore, right? But you probably still have a garden. Basically, I'm trying to not get too far ahead, but I want to know what your favorite tomatoes are to grow right now.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I definitely have favorites. I've tasted yeah a lot of a lot of tomatoes and and i mean honestly it's like they're not all distinctive that's the thing is that the, the ones that are my favorites are the ones that that jump out okay. from tasting all those all those tomatoes cuz the suspense is building <laughs> i like german johnson for a kind of pink like brandywine type of tomato and so i mean i like brandywine a lot too uh, but i think personally i think that the the non potato leaf version of german johnson I think it tastes just as good, if not better than Brandywine and gives that, you know, big pink tomato. And I think that it is, it is a lot more productive because Brandywine, I know a lot of people like Brandywine. wine wine is great, but I think German Johnson is just as good Mm -hmm. in the, the non-potato leaf version I've found is a lot more productive. Okay. I like Cherokee purple. Okay. I also like black cream. I mean, black Mm -hmm. cream is Annie's favorite.
0: I like that one.
1: Those are pretty much my favorites, and like I said, I, I like the pinks and the reds more like me personally, but, I mean, it's striped German is good for bicolor tomato. Yeah. So
0: Okay, so then at some point in the mix, Lynn Bozinski reached out to you and said, hey, you know the magazine, which, by the way, I have to say, I've been reading Growing for Market, gosh, since probably 2005, and then writing for it a bunch as a farmer and i've always just loved how it was this magazine by farmers for farmers it always felt so unique and even the ads in the magazine were like relevant to me (laughs) it's very infrequent that i pick up a magazine and i'm almost as interested in the ads as i am the editorial content which is always how i felt about growing for market anyhow she reached out to you said i'm ready to move on from this project do you want to buy it? Tell me about that how like what was your initial reaction? had you you had written some articles for her before? Is that how she kind of knew who you were?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I met Lynn at some point while I was working for Johnny's. She did a little bit of work in consulting for Johnny's, and so I had always thought because we'd gotten growing for market since we were introduced to it as apprentices and so we had gotten it for years, and so I'd been writing. Uh, all right. And so when I met Lynn, I mean, I'd always thought, wouldn't it be fun to write an article for growing for market magazine about something I'm doing? So I met Lynn at some point when she was up here in Maine. And so I introduced myself and I said, Hey, can I, you know, send you an article sometime? Or I guess it's we'd call it a pitch. You know, I was like, Hey, are you looking for writers? And she was like, yeah, send me a pitch. And so my, in fact, I think my first article was about how to pick tomato varieties. It's what I was working on at the time. In fact, I may have picked Rob Johnston's brain a little bit about it too, because at that time he was out, you know, working every day in the research, the same research station where I was working, and it just went from there. And so I, you know, would write a few articles every year. And so I, you know, I was writing, had written a number of articles for her. And I, I think the other thing that I should say about taking over, growing for market. That plays into what we were just talking about, about sort of like specializing or like not stretching yourself too thin and specializing is when she called me, I was working on a plan to build a greenhouse, like a half acre, two thirds of an acre, gutter connected, like big, you know, tall.
0: Oh, one of those big.
1: Yeah because that that's my passion. And so, you know, I was trying to get happier. I was trying to do do the work that I made me happy and also, you know, support support the business. And so, I had actually done quite a bit of of work in it. They, I had gotten a grant from the state of Maine to, that just helped me research it a little bit because what I wanted to do, uh, the project that I had in mind, I still have a, a spreadsheet called the Green Greenhouse. So I was really inspired by some people that I got a chance to to visit with in my research role at Johnny's. One guy I'll give a shout out to is Frederick Jobin Lawler. He's a really excellent greenhouse grower up in Quebec. And so he was probably one of my favorite people to go visit, especially on the greenhouse side of things. And he has just the most beautiful soil grown certified organic greenhouse produce. And he has a lot of his heat comes from geothermal energy. And so, because I love greenhouse growing, the biggest drawbacks, as far as I'm concerned, are how much plastic that go into it yeah, and how much fossil fuels go into it.
0: Right. Because in Maine, are people heating them? Is that because out here, I don't know many people who are heating their high tunnels because we're in a different climate. So is that something common in Maine?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um I mean, people have still have a lot of unheated high tunnels out here. In fact, our tunnels when we first built them were unheated and it's really Annie who's added heaters to them for for seedling.
0: For seedlings, yes, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. That would be heated out here too.
1: Yeah, but it's I mean, there's a lot of heated greenhouses up here. It's like we were talking the other day, I think the main spring is i think kind of probably like oregon's winter right and so if you really want to push the season up here you gotta heat i mean it's not you know the high tunnels will push the season a little bit but i've heard from so many growers who are disappointed who built high tunnels and were like i thought my season would get a lot longer than this and i'm that's just the rub is when you you know when you're in a place that gets really really cold i mean you know we'll get down to negative 20 negative 30 degrees fahrenheit in the winter time and obviously it's not that cold when we're starting the tomatoes but still very you know Like if you want to have early tomatoes up here, right? Because Katie, you know, as soon as it's like April, people start saying like, when are you going to have tomatoes? So yeah, if if you really want to push the season in any measurable way up here in Maine, you got to heat. And so what I was trying to do was build a greenhouse that was going to be really expensive. And so I was trying to essentially either you know, cobble together some type of either investors or get some green investment money or something like that. Because what I wanted to do was build a project and share all the information Mm. as far as, because as we talked about with your farm, Katie, banks don't want to lend money to unproven ideas, right? And so there are places that I've seen this technology in use, but it's not the standard thing yet to say, you know, use geothermal heat to heat a greenhouse. And I, and I know from, I mean, I went so far as I got quotes on the structure itself. I got quotes on the geothermal system. Geothermal system was going to cost us a hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Now it was going to pay for itself when you consider how much heat, how much propane or whatever fuel you're burning. I mean, it would pay for itself within three to five years, but you know, you still got to come up with a hundred thousand dollars. So you got to either have it or have somebody loan it to you up front. So. I was already thinking, I really liked working at Johnny's, but I also knew that I wasn't going to be there forever. I always was, like, honestly, I was always thinking once my farm was at the point, basically what kept me up at night was how we can grow our farm business so I can quit my day job. Mm-hmm. Which is a funny thing to say, like, I'm lucky. I actually liked my day job. It was in my field. So it may sound may sound like a weird thing to say, but I bet a lot of people out there can can relate. I've known a lot of people who had day jobs that they really liked, but still, still wanted to go do something else. So my challenge, as I saw it at the time, was how to build the farm's income to the point where I, I could quit. And so when Lynn called me about eight years ago, I was already pretty deep into the planning of this greenhouse project. And so, yeah, she called me up like January of 2008. And she said, Hey, I have been doing growing for market for I think 22 years or probably slightly off on that, but you know, over, she had been doing growing for market for over 20 years at that point. And she said, I'm getting to the point where I'm ready to, you know, hand it off to somebody. Would you consider taking growing for market over for me? And It was out of the blue. You know, I mean, we had never talked about it before. And so I was surprised and I was interested, but I also said, well, why me? And so she said, because we're a very small publication. You know, for people who don't know, there's basically a staff of two who keep the magazine going. And, but then there's the people that I'd really like to thank are the writers. You know, I feel like we have. You know, there's only about two or three of us that, and then other people who do the editing and layout and and all that kind of thing. But we're a very small publication. I mean, really, we're probably in the similar size as far as staff and income and all that kind of thing to a lot of the farm businesses that we we interact with. But she said, as a very small business, she thought it was important for the editor to write for the magazine, and she said. Because you're already writing for the magazine, and also I guess I was I was young enough at the time to spend a few years to get the hang of it and still have a you know, a career ahead of me running it. So that's that's what she told me as far as why she offered it to me. And so, you know, I told her I'd have to think about it a little bit because it was really you know is the kind of decision that changes the course of your life. And so I thought about it. And did a lot of figuring, you know, as far as how to pencil out, and also how it related to the the project. I mean, I was full steam ahead trying to trying to get this greenhouse project funded. And, uh, you know, I, I called it the green greenhouse. Uh, th- my idea was that it w- I was going to try and build a greenhouse in the most sustainable way possible and then share that information so other people could ideally do the same thing. And that was going to be part of my pitch to try to get some, some green investment, like basically tell people, like, if you want this kind of stuff to happen, help fund my project, I'll share it, and then more people will be able to do it. And so what I thought is that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I thought I can build a greenhouse anytime I can scrape the funding together. Yeah. (laughs) Which isn't guaranteed, but that's a whole project in itself. But I thought I never. If I turn this down, I'm never going to get the opportunity to take over growing for market again. And so we had been getting growing for market for years. It was definitely important in our, our formative years for farming, just because even having apprenticed on a number of farms like we did in different parts of the country, there's still so many different ways to do things in farming. And it's sort of like, what if you happen to learn the worst way or a way that doesn't suit you? you know, to do things on your farm. Well, hopefully there's something like growing for market that mm-hmm. shows you how other people are, are doing it. And also, cause I think farmers are real innovators and tinkerers, you know, people, they're always like trying, having to figure out what's, what's this new invasive insect? What's this new disease that I don't usually get that's killing all my tomatoes this year or whatever. Right. And so, you know, I think the, the small farm community is basically scrappy, you know, just finding solutions. And so, I think there might be somebody off on their farm doing something brilliant, but it doesn't help anybody else if nobody else knows about it. And so growing for market had been important to us, and I wanted to steward it into the future. I wanted to keep it strong. The way I look at growing for market is, in many ways, how I looked at my job at Johnny's. Because when I was at Johnny's, I thought, if I can do a good job and find a game-changing variety for a farm, right? like if you're a farmer just think think about what your favorite variety is and think about if you didn't have that variety like somebody had to either develop that variety or isn't bring it to market and commercialize it right and so th- that will make a big difference you know whether it's a little bit higher yielding surviving a disease that you're that you get every year or solving some other production problem there are varieties that are that can be game changers for farms and so i take the same approach with growing for market you know i'm thinking if i do a good job I can advance, help advance the state of market farming, which is something that I really believe in and want to succeed, right? So once again, I'll get to combine something that I do. like. I have a lot of affinity for writing. I mean, kind of the, the irony of this whole situation is I really haven't done very much writing for the magazine since taking it over because I've been so darn busy trying to just get the hang of it. But I do think, you know, I wanted to to make sure that it, it just stayed strong and independent for that matter. Cuz I do want to I do want to thank Lynn and kind of give her a shout out for thinking of me because honestly, she could have gotten paid off faster. She probably could have gotten more money by selling it to a, a corporation that owns multiple publications. I mean, people probably know, I want to say most of the magazines and newspapers and things out there are owned by a parent company in whose bottom line is right. making money, right? And so Because I didn't have, just like I was trying to go out there and find funding for my greenhouse, I didn't have the money to buy growing for, just like write her a check and buy growing for market from her. And so I did, I was able to, I mean, this might be more information than than people want to know, but I was able to get a loan from my bank for half of it, but they wouldn't loan me enough money to buy the whole magazine from her. So you know, she's got skin in the game. She had to, be- to believe that I would pay her back. And so she carried part of it. Yeah. Yeah. She carried part of it. We're about a year, year out from just being from having her completely paid off. And so, you know, I realized she, she took a chance on me and I, I appreciate that. And I think it's worked out. You know, I think I can't remember if I mentioned this in the, the first part of our interview, but when, we, when we were talking, getting pretty deep in the stages of handing over growing for market, you know, she told me, she said, I have two kids And growing for market is my third, you know, basically like, take care of it. And so I think it's going well. I mean, I, as far as you know, what I really wanted to do instead of be somebody who comes in and like, changes things around. And I like the way she had it for so many years. And so it was more less about it's not about me. I hope that it will survive and I can either pass it on to one of my kids if they're writer, editor types or pass it on to somebody else who will keep it independent and useful and have character. So, you know, I definitely felt like she was passing something along to me that, that I valued, but I also knew that it was something that was, you know, she had put 20 plus years of her life into, to building up. And so I, you know, I definitely want to thank her for that. And I, I I mean, just from talking to her, I think it's, I think it's going well. And I think, so taking it over more than like putting my own spin on it, I really just kind of want to uh, like get the hang of it first. Cause that, that's another thing is that it was, it was a lot, you know, to, for me to, to, to get the hang of running this business is a big change for me. But I think the first part for me was just sort of like getting the hang of it and stay, you know, keeping the business stable. Right. And even just that, I felt like I was drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Had to learn just how to run a publication, how to talk with writers and everything. And that's why, you know, it's it's not about me. It's honestly, I think of myself as like cat herder in chief or something like that, as far as like trying to find writers, trying to make sure they all turn their stories in on time and all that kind of stuff. I think the biggest almost like change that needed to happen. I think the magazine is good the way that it she made it. But I think what my role has been has been to bring it into sort of like the digital era as far as you know, be more active on social media. Right. Because I mean, growing for market started in 1992. Right. So there was no there's no social media. And so, you know, there was like direct mail and all these and I think word of mouth and all these things. And we still appreciate word of mouth. But I didn't really realize it at the time. But I think that was my job was to take growing for market and make sure that we're finding people through the new channels being social media. And I mean, things like this podcast, you know, like having a podcast wasn't even an option. Back when growing for market was started, right? Podcast didn't exist. And so, and, and, and like I was telling you, I'm not an early adopter on all that tech stuff. You know, I got a Facebook account for the first time ever. I think it was December of 2015. I got a Facebook account so I could become the administrator of the growing for market Facebook. You know, that's a funny thing. It's not even, I didn't even like hate Facebook or any of that kind of stuff. I was busy. I was busy trying to work on the farm and do my job. And by that time, we also had kids and be a parent and, and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't have time for social media. You know, I mean, it's, it's funny though that I think that's been one of the most important things that I've, I've tried to do because I, as a realist, I realized that that's how people find out about this kind of stuff. Like if you have a magazine or anything, that's how the people use that to a great deal. And particularly young people, because think about it. We're a trade publication, right? So people generally don't get growing for market if they're not either farming actively or really seriously planning on having a farm, right? So there's also this thing where people age out of growing for market. Like we'll get these letters from people, which I always love. I like to hear even when they're you know, not going to subscribe anymore. I like to hear from people why they're not going to subscribe. You know, we'll get these letters that are like, hey, we enjoyed your publication for many years, but we sold the farm or we stopped farming. And so we're not going to we're not going to resubscribe. And so but and at the same time, we want this movement to grow we talked about before how, I mean, I just think there's no way to farm, you know, in a way that's healthy for people and healthy for the planet with less than 1% of the population doing the farming without cutting some corners. You know, I I feel like that's why there's so much chemical usage in a a lot of the problems with modern farming is because we're trying to do it, you know, with all by chemicals. And so- well, I mean, I, luckily, the movement is growing. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of growth um, actually um, during the 90s, and you can track it uh, 90s and uh, 2000s. It, just the, the amount of the number of farmers markets in the country went up really steadily during that time, and it, it's starting to kind of plateau. But I think that the people who want to be farmers is that audience is still growing. And so if you think about it, there are young people coming in and some of them not young, you know, some people with doing a second career just realize they hate their job and want to do something else. I'm like, great, we need more people to be doing local farming. And so, but you know, how do we connect with those people? It's through things like social media and the podcast. And so now that I've been doing it so this is i guess i've done i've got seven years behind me so i guess i'm in my eighth year with growing for market i realize now that's i think that's really my job is to to figure out how we can keep connecting with people and just make sure that the information is still good because our readership is so diverse Between, you know, some people only grow flowers. And I think that was one really brilliant thing that Lynn did was to have flowers be a strong voice in that magazine. People who don't read the magazine may not know, but we always have at least one flower dedicated article in the magazine, just because flowers have always been an important part of farmers markets and It seems to be even more. I mean, flowers, like the number of people we're getting who have flower farm in the name, it just seems like the flower, there's like a local flower explosion, kind of like there was a locavore food explosion, you know, 20-ish years ago.
0: Yeah. I see that out here too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly what. In fact, when I interviewed Lynn for the podcast a few months back, um, we talked a little bit about what exactly was spurring all that. But I mean, flowers just p- seems like people are really getting interested in in growing flowers and starting flower farms, which I think is a, is a great thing, just considering how much of the flowers in this country come from South and Central America, which you don't have anything against the people in South and Central America, but they're getting flown in.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a long way for flowers.
1: I mean that's that's insane. Plus, those countries have tend to have different pesticide laws than we do, and I know they use a lot of chemicals on those flowers because they gotta look perfect, right? So yeah. they gotta look perfect to make it on the plane and go two thousand miles and then land in your grocery store or wherever in your florist. So I think it's a really important part of cleaning up our farm system. Is nourishing that that local flower system. So that's something that's really important. But you know, my point is we got a very diverse readership. Some people grow flowers, some people grow vegetables, but only certain vegetables. And so I'm not kidding myself. Like most growing for market magazines, let's say if we have five or six articles in most magazines, probably most magazines, people won't read every single article. But what you know the way I think about it is that we need to keep a diversity of articles in the magazine because I think as long as somebody gets a growing for market and every magazine has at least one useful story, it probably makes it worth it, right? Because if you get one good idea that benefits your business, it probably pays for, yeah, I mean, each magazine is only four or five bucks. And so and, you know that approach that I take to it is trying to keep each magazine fairly diverse so that hopefully everybody in the small farm community will find something.
0: Yes. I also love that it's still offered in print. I know that that's probably, at times, feels like an expensive choice to still be doing when producing online content for you has a lot less overhead, but for me, as a reader, there's something just fundamentally different in pouring a cup of tea or coffee and sitting down with paper. And just flipping through it, and I end up reading articles that I wouldn't read if I were online. I do this with the New York Times too. We get the weekend papers, and I also can look midweek online. And I find that I, just by turning the page, you know, and having that leisurely moment, that like nice, nice little quiet moment in my day, I find myself getting sucked into things I would never click on the headline. And then also, it's great with growing for market how people can then hold on to them. I know I've held on to some copies for a couple years and referred back to articles that were really useful. So at least for now, I really appreciate that that's something you all are st- still doing.
1: Good. Yeah. I'm with you, Katie. I still like to read things that are long format on paper. And I don't know if it's farmers farmers old fashioned or or what, because still, I think over half of our subscribers still get one of the formats that has paper. In fact, one change that we made Within the last few years, was giving print subscribers access to the the PDFs just in case they want to read them both ways. Because Mm -hmm. for a long time, the way the subscription worked was that if you got the print subscription, you just got the print, and you didn't have any online access. And we were like, well, it doesn't really cost us anymore. It just costs us a little bit of time to set up everybody with an online login. And then we're like, well, what the heck? We might as well do that in case people are away from their printed copies and they want to look something up or something like that. But yeah, we're going to keep print going as long as we possibly can. And so we did actually, uh, within the last couple of years, we did just, we had to raise the the price of a print subscription because the the cost Mm -hmm. of paper went up, the cost of mailing went up. You're right. It is, that's probably the biggest overhead of the whole printing and mailing is the biggest overhead for the whole magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, Although that's why, we only raised the price of that print sub, right? So we, as much as like, we try to just not raise prices as much as possible. It got to the point where we were getting close to losing money on the print. And so we just had to do it, but we only raised, we kept all the other prices the same. We raised the cost of the print simply because it was just costing so much more to print and mail the magazine. And we will keep it, the magazine printed on paper until it becomes absolutely financially unsustainable to do so. Because I think I think a lot of, a lot of our readers are like that and, and enjoy the print. So, so yeah, if you want the print.
0: Andrew, they can also pass it on to their interns. I mean, that's how I found out about Growing for Market. And I think you said the same for you too, right? When we, when we yeah. left, I think we talked about this in my interview. When we left the farm where we were working in Bellingham, Washington to start our own farm, we were lent, I don't think he gave it to us, an archive of Growing for Market magazines to take down with us to read along with, oh, he was so generous, some old sewing logs so we could see his timing. And then we gave them all back, but I was hooked. So that's that helps pass the word on. Okay. I want to make sure that we can talk about a few other things before we wrap up. You've written books as well as running the magazine. You've written the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook, Organic Vegetable Production Using Protected Culture. That came out in 2017 from Chelsea Green. And I guess none of us at this point are surprised that you wrote that book because you clearly love greenhouses. And then you also have two books about no-till farming that were published by New Society. The first was The Organic No-Till Farming Revolution, High Production Methods for Small-Scale Farmers, which came out in 2019. And then a follow-up, and my understanding is that first one was very conversational, and then the next one was more to the point, like a how-to. Okay, the next one is Practical No-Till Farming, A Quick and Dirty Guide to Organic Vegetable and Flower Growing, which came out just last fall. So that's a lot of books. You've already explained that fitting those into your life wasn't necessarily a balanced thing. And we've talked about what probably inspired the greenhouse one a lot, but I did want to briefly talk uh, as well about the no-till idea. So this is, you've told me that you want to make sure that the magazine represents all the different ways that people are doing market farming, right? So whether they're using a tractor or horses or no-till, but you personally have a lot of interest in no-till. And is that something that you have been able to implement on your farm as well as doing the research for the books with talking to other farmers? Is that something that you tried out when you got to Maine?
1: Yes, well, yes and no, because, uh, yeah. So, so first of all, I do want to draw a distinction between the, say, the books that I've written in my own personal interest and and the magazine. Like the way I think of it, the magazine is not about me. It's it's really should. Be, if I'm doing a good job in the magazine, it's really more of a reflection of what is going on in farming. What right? Because most of the articles are not written by me. I'm really just trying to find. What the important ideas that we need to be talking about, the timely ideas. In fact, I, if nothing else, I want Growing For Market to be timely. I remember the, the one farm I think I was telling you that we quit, that our apprenticeship didn't oh, yeah. work out as mm-hmm. a personality conflict. Well, I remember when we walked in to tell the the farmers that we were quitting, there was a Growing For Market on the, the couch with the headline, like, Keeping Your Apprentices Happy, or ah. How to Keep Your Apprentices Happy, or something like that. No. So, so it's like... <laughs> So if nothing else, right, because farming is such a seasonal business, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like a lot of other businesses in that we have very strong seasonal nature. And so I realized that the magazine is not about me. It's really, if I'm doing a good job, it's about other people. But I did have a strong interest in no-till. And it wasn't something we were doing when we first got to Maine because that. So the I, the research farm that I worked on that studied no-till, that was the one I was telling you used the what I call the roller crimper method, yeah. where people grow mm-hmm. a really tall cover crop and roll it down and plant through it, did not turn out to be. It's not a great method for small diversified vegetable farms, and so you know that was was certainly discouraging for me in a way. I mean, it was it was great working on that research farm was a great experience. I think it's a great technique for people who are growing larger blocks of crops. In fact, I I talk in the books, I talk about the roller crimper method and say, you know, for people, it works great for pumpkins and squash and things like that. So if you have a bigger farm and are doing say a whole acre or like a pumpkin patch or an acre of winter squash or more or something like that or even even tomatoes it can work really well if you're growing a big block of tomatoes outside you can plant tomatoes through a rolled down cover crop and that works really well but it doesn't work well for the diversified vegetable farms and flower farms that are doing succession planting every week and need a planting window every week So when we first got to Maine, we were still just tilling everything up because that's what we went back to when we realized that the roller crimper method didn't really work for our kind of farming. So, I mean, the funny thing is, is that I wrote the greenhouse book as real labor of love. And in fact, you know, one of my jobs at Johnny's, in addition to all the trialing, I was supposed to be... Knowledgeable, like really knowledgeable about all the crops that I was trialing. That was part of the point, was it right? You have somebody who knows what they're doing trialing the crops. And so I was also troubleshooting calls from growers. And so later on, towards the end of Johnny's, when I was really became a greenhouse specialist due to all the interest we were getting from customers in greenhouse, I kept getting the same questions over and over. And so, I mean, like, I had the thought, I was like, before I wrote the book, I was like, Gosh, somebody should write all this stuff down. Like, I just seem to be getting the same questions over and over. And really, that's one of the things that drove the book, was just a all the stuff that I learned, and B, I knew what qu- what struggles people were having because I kept hearing the same questions over and over and over. So finally, I was like, I, I did, I yeah, I, actually, what I did is I pitched Chelsea Green using some of my Growing for Market articles because I had a lot of the writing that I'd done for GFM was about growing greenhouse crops, and so I sent them my GFM articles, and because you, you probably know Katie, you know, most of the times when you pitch a book, they ask you to either like send a chapter
0: or writing sample.
1: And so I didn't write a chapter. I was like, yeah, I was like, here's all my articles and they gave me a contract to write the book based on my growing for market articles so we don't really have enough time to get into all the greenhouse stuff in fact i i did what i think is a good interview with chris blanchard before he passed away. Chris Blanchard had the Farmer to Farmer podcast. If people don't know that one, I think it's probably the best podcast out there. Sadly, it has ended. It was his idea and it died with him. But that's still relevant and worth looking back to. So there's, there's an interview with me with Chris Blanchard talking about that book. If people want to hear me talk about greenhouse stuff, that would be a good place they could go. So when we arrived in Maine, we were just till- pretty r- regular tillage. The one concession we made is we had a spader. So we that we tried to use as much as possible as sort of people aren't f- familiar. Like I I, I th- say a spader is like having a an army of elves following behind your tractor with little shovels because instead of the whirling blades inverting uh-huh. the soil, yeah, it has this these little like mechanical shovels that basically toss the soil so you don't get as much of a smear pan as with a a rototiller. But we just went back to what we had been taught, which was the the sort of like regular tillage, which usually involves a rototiller for diversified vegetable farms. And so then okay. So so then when I started hearing about the, all the no-till stuff that, say, the Bear Mountain people are doing out in, in Oregon, your neck of the woods, and what Connor was doing at Never Sink Farm, and what like Ricky Baruch was doing at Seeds of Solidarity, and Brian O'Hara at Tobacco Road Farm, I was like, a light bulb went off for me. I was like, these people figured out how to do what I was wanting to do and couldn't figure out for all these years. And so, and at that point, yeah, we were doing quite a bit of tillage and cultivation. And so I was like, uh, I, I want to, I want to learn what these people are doing because they're still, you know, like go back five years, like there's a, no till is getting a lot of exposure right now. So, you know, love it or hate it, you know, it's a pretty hot topic in agriculture right now, all kinds of agriculture. I mean, I feel, feel like proof of concept is that all the big, a lot of the corn and soy millions of acres of corn and soy, uh, for better or for worse, right? Because it's reduced tillage, but it's increased chemical usage a lot right? And genetic modification, if you think about it. I mean, uh, I think that genetic modification is basically an enabler for conventional no-till, right? Because they need to have genetically modified corn and soy that won't die when they go over the top with the glyphosate or like, then when you get super weeds that are resistant to the glyphosate, you switch to 2,4-D and even worse and worse and worse cocktails. So I'm not at all sure that no-till is a blessing for conventional agriculture. I think it's just led to an increase in chemical usage. But so I saw these people who had figured out their own small farm, no-till systems. And so I was pretty tired of writing by that point, honestly. Like I wrote my greenhouse book and I was like, oh my, I'm never doing that again, or at least like no time soon. And so the, the funny thing is almost immediately I turned around and I got, you know, you know, cause I was like, I saw what these other people were doing and I wanted to do it on our farm. And I thought, well, I'm a writer, so I should go ask him. And so I just I just asked all these people, you know, Singing Frogs Farm out in California. So I just approached all these people and asked them if, if they would talk to me. So, you know, my idea was almost like growing for market. It was almost like a growing for market book because it wasn't my ideas. It was me being the conduit for other people's ideas. So I should say for people who aren't familiar with the book, the book is a series of maybe I want to say 17 interviews with almost all the people that I could find doing no-till at the time. And of course, at some point I had to cut it. You know, I only had so much time to work on the book. And so, I mean, I talked to actually more people than that. All books have a length. You know, some interviews didn't make the book. So the book is basically like the 17 best interviews that came out of that time. And as many of them as possible, I went and visited their farms because that was a transition time. That book was written when I was early taking over Growing For Market. And so I would also do things like go to conferences and take that opportunity to go visit people. So like I got to visit Denise and Tony at Bear Mountain out there in Oregon. I visited, I guess not all the farms, but was able to visit most of the farms. Like that's where I first met Connor of Neversync. I didn't know him personally, but I saw I saw what he was doing. And so there's an interview and profile of, of Connor at Neversync in that book, as with all you know, all the other great farmers that I, I just mentioned. And so basically I just saw what they were doing and wanted to go learn from them. And so that book is essentially a write-up. You know, it's a series of interviews with a little bit of, of sort of like interpretation because there's a few different broad no-till methods used in there. And that, you know, the funny thing about that book is that I, I pitched it to Chelsea Green originally and they said they passed on it because they said, actually we have somebody else working on a no-till book. And So I was like on fire with this idea to write the book. And so I was like, well, as much for myself, like I wanted to go talk to these people because I wanted to do it. And so I said to myself, I was like, all right, forget about it for two weeks. Forget, just try not to think about it. And if as much as possible, and if you're still thinking about it at the end of two weeks, pitch it to somebody else like New Society. And I mainly just pitched it to Chelsea Green first because they did my greenhouse book. And so I already had connections with them. And so at the end of the two weeks, I still I wanted to know, uh, understand how these people's systems were using because I want I wanted to do it. And so at the end of the two weeks, I was still thinking about it. And so I pitched it to New Society and they immediately were like, yeah, let's do it. And so, I mean, that was super helpful, actually, because they, you know, as with most books, they, they gave me a small advance, which I used to take those trips in some cases to go visit those people. And so, in fact, we don't have time to get into the technicalities of the book here. But I did what I think is a pretty good podcast interview, actually, with No Till Growers. The No-Till Growers podcast, which if people haven't if people haven't listened to that one and they're interested in no-till, that's a great podcast. So I did that interview back when um, Jesse Frost was was hosting it. So if people really want to hear about the no-till; they can go look up episode of uh, No-Till Growers that I did with them. But it was a funny situation for me because I was contacting all these growers, asking them if they I could come out to their farms and talk to them about what they were doing, knowing that one of them was probably working on a book, and so I was just like. What the heck! I will tell everybody what I'm doing, and nobody said no. You know, every single person that I asked if I could come out to their farm did said, "Yeah, come on out." And including uh, Brian, which I think is te- a testament to how great of a guy Brian is, that he he may have been working on his own book on the topic at the time, and he still had me out to his farm and showed me around. So
0: it does seem like there's a lot of no-till books out there now that are getting read and talked about. No-till is definitely the hot area of farming right now for lots of folks. So clearly there was room for a lot of people to share. It does seem like a topic too, that people are really passionate about. So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all that you got all of those farmers to respond to your query about the books. I think people are really excited about sharing the knowledge around such a different way of approaching growing food and are clearly doing it in part because it works for their farm. Both profitability and, but also in terms of, you know, managing labor and just their overall experience. So I think people who choose that method are pretty enthusiastic and excited to share.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the last thing I want to say on that is just that it it is something I'm personally interested in, but it's also, I know, like, When I was talking, writing those books, people either loved the idea or hated it. You know, I mean, no-till can be something that that brings out strong feelings in people. Because I know some people are like, oh, I would love to be able to get away from tilling. And then other people I would talk to about it and be like, I can't imagine how you could even do that. And I also know that some people feel like I've heard this from some people that they almost feel like a little bit judged, like no till is now the hot thing. And like, if they're, they're like, if they're still tilling, you like, they're getting judged. And so the thing that I want to see more than anything else is local farms succeed. You know, I want to say, so that's why I don't care if they're tilling, if they're not tilling, you know, me personally, it was to be able to get away from all that, you know, riding the tractor doing cultivation, because it's just not what I like to do. I think there are there can be benefits for soil life and other things. But on the other hand, really conscientious good farming with tillage can be you know can be very healthy for the ecosystem too and so you know i just want to say and that's where also i separate my personal interests like the books that i've written from what's in growing for market magazine in fact there was one issue i forget which issue it was where we had an article by somebody else about no-till and then we had an article all about cultivation in the same magazine right yeah. So like, I want to be very behind the scenes for growing for market. I want it like, I feel like if I'm doing my job, I'm not drawing attention to myself. And I want to make sure that growing for market, you know, like I might've written a book or two about no-till, but the magazine is for everybody. And so I'm just trying to, you know, have articles and still, we have articles by people talking about how they do no-till, still people talking about how they do cultivation. So I want growing for market to really be sort of like a forum for the, the best, the best ideas. And it's not even like a, a celebrity death match or anything. It's not like one idea is going to like prevail and rule them all. It's like, I want to be, be able to put it, the best practices that are out there, recognizing that farms have different climates, different crops, different soils, and all these different things. And that all the, the farming decisions that people make are going to be unique to their own situation. So I want to make sure that in separate, you know, the stuff that I'm into is different from growing for market.
0: Of course. And but I think that it also is important to show that you are a farmer yourself and still very much involved in agriculture even outside the magazine, which is part of what brings the magazine the authority and authenticity it has for its readership. So of course, whoever's at the helm is gonna have their own specific choices about how they grow. And I think for me as a reader, that's it's less important that my exact growing choices line up with yours as the editor. And more important to me that you have some, you know, that you have that level of experience and hands on knowledge that you know, when you hear from a farmer who wants to write a story that what makes it relevant to your audience. So I think that's important too, but I appreciate you wanting to distinguish your books from the magazine, and we yeah. can enjoy both out here as your audience. And then should probably wrap up, but I also want to point out that now you have, you kept the magazine in very much the similar format to what Lynn started, kept working on the social media and marketing, but this is a whole new thing, starting a podcast. This is an awesome new evolution for the magazine. And we talked a bit in the interview you did with me about some of the goals with that, with just being able to feature stories and people who might not ever have the time or interest to write an article, but who have a lot to share with your audience. But I also love that it provides a way for people to get some of this information, for example, while they're on their tractor. You know, I mean, that's a thing. People listen to podcasts on their tractor. One of my neighbors has, I don't have this set up, but she has a cool Bluetooth connected set of ear protection. (laughs) Every time she's out there mowing, I think, I wonder what? She's listening to today, you know, so maybe it'll be growing for market one of these days. But for people who are busy and on the go, maybe they're in their delivery vehicle, maybe they're on their tractor. This now provides a whole another way for people to connect with the information. And we talked a little more about that last time with the interview with me. But I'm curious if you have any dream interviews, like not necessarily particular people, but what kinds of stories are you hoping to feature on the podcast? Like what's your wish list of who might reach out to you to come on? Are there any particular ideas that you've been anxious to have a conversation about?
1: Oh, that's a hard one because well, it's more because there's so many people on my list. So like Katie, okay. I know, you know, that's one thing we've talked about and I think that that's one thing I'm excited about you are going to bring to the podcast is just you're going to think of different people. So I've got a really long list in you know, like I know, I just know, you know, different people, different part of country than me. So you're exposed to different people and different things. I mean, honestly, when you, and you just ask me that question, it actually made me think of one person that we're not going to ever be able to get, which is Amigo Bob Kansasano. You know, he, he passed away a couple of years ago. I always thought, uh, you know, it was in the time period where we were th- talking about maybe doing this podcast. And I think like, It's too bad, you know. I never, I never reached out to him, but I think I want to let that motivate me and remind me nobody's around forever, and we need to like seize the day and reach out to these people. And I think that's one of the one of the great things about the podcast is that we can get people who wouldn't write an article, and also it's kind of a it's a moment in time too, in that you know I think an article tends to be more like a presentation. You know, like here's everything you need to know about pigweed. Right. Whereas just the fact that we have more space as far right as, far as we can say a lot more words in an hour even of a podcast than you can in a growing for market article. Right. I mean, we probably say more words in an hour interview than the an entire growing for market magazine. Right. So it allows us to have these little like. You can take side trips and side conversations and things so i wish amigo bob were still around it makes me think of the people that we've lost actually i wish amigo bob were around i wish i wish chris blanchard were still around so we could have him on our podcast but i think i just want to use that as motivation to don't hesitate is to reach out to these people i mean it's actually making me think right now of, of some people that we need to, to talk to while, while they're still around
0: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Make sure we reach out to the elders and the founders of what we're all doing, get some of that historical perspective and preserve some of the work they've done. And I mean, you have already had a few people on who have some of that longer history. I mean, just like having Lynn Bazinski on who started Growing for Market and could speak to what the local food movement was or was not like. In the 80s, particularly in the Midwest, and just having that perspective on how much it's changed. Well, I'm excited to listen to the interviews that you do, Andrew. I've enjoyed what I've listened to so far in this year of podcasting. Any parting words you want to share with your audience?
1: Yeah, I do have a couple things. You know, the first one is if I crushed anybody's dreams by telling them not to do vegetables and animals and eggs and like churning your own butter and your own cultured lacto fermented products all at the same time i'm sorry i do think that one of the great things about small farming is the diversity what i mean is that do one thing well at least well enough that you're making money on it and if it's if it's like the way a lot of small farms start with just one or two people and do it figure it out well enough that you can hire somebody to keep it going because I know I got really burned out after trying to do too much. And, you know, I mean, like writing the books, actually, I mean, it all kind of flows. It's like, so my, you know, my projects might've been vegetables, greenhouses, livestock, books, magazine, but it's like, it's somebody else's mix is going to be different. Like nobody's mix is going to be the same, but it's just something I still see because we got young idealistic people. So it's, I, I, it's like, I don't want that idealism to get crushed. That's why I don't want them to try and take on too much burnout. So I want them to do all those things. I just want them also to stay in business and not be burned out. Cause that's a, that's a great way to start hating what you love, right? Is to do, to do too much of it, spread yourself thin, And then you feel like, you know, like I'm, I'm not making any money. Right. Cause I mean, this isn't, this is not, we keep coming back to money it's because we're not a gardening magazine. It's a farming magazine. Right. All right. And so like, that's great. If you got something that's keeping a roof over your head and like you want to do all kinds, you know, dabbling in all kinds of different projects, that's great. But if it's yourself or you and a partner or something like that, starting a business, there's just really realistically only so many enterprises that any one or two people can do well enough. So it's because I want people to stay in business and not get burned out that I encourage people to just n- narrow things down a little bit. So I'm not saying don't do all those things. Just make sure you have one that, that's paying the bills. I just, still think about building that greenhouse. When you think about the size of the greenhouse that I was trying to build, a half acre, two thirds of an acre greenhouse, is pretty small in the greenhouse world. But it's that's a pretty big greenhouse for a small farm. And realistically, I would be maybe doing some of the work, but I what I was setting myself up to do was to be in more of a position of a greenhouse manager, right? Because a lot of the time coming up through farming, I really, and I think rightly so, very valued the hands-on aspect. You know, I was like, I want to do this because I want to be doing the work. And that's great when you're 20 and your back feels good and all that kind of thing. But I was also looking at expanding the business so I could quit my day job and have a reliable source of income for myself and my family, whether I get hurt or not, you know, cause that's, that's one thing people got to, you know, people have to plan for the future when they're not as spry, as they are when they are 25, or if they pick up an injury. I mean, people got to think about that. You know, people who are on one or two farms, it, nobody wants to think about it because it's not fun, but they got to think about how's that business going to keep going if you're, you know, if you get hurt or, or if you get really sick or something like that. And so that's, like I realized I really have an affinity for greenhouse growing. I enjoy it. And so, and I realized that I would, you know, I was basically trying to build a greenhouse so that I could be the greenhouse manager for my own farm. The idea was that we'd build a big enough greenhouse that we would have to have employees, but that we would scale up because there's a, you know, like, like I go into my, my local grocery store. In fact, there's pictures of this in my greenhouse book. I'll go into my local grocery store and pretty much 365 days of the year, there's an organic tomato on the shelf. But it's from in the wintertime, it's from Mexico and that summertime it's from Canada. So once again, don't have anything against Mexico, Canada, but I'm like, hello, I'm five miles away. Those should be my tomatoes. There, there's a picture in my greenhouse book from my local grocery store of eggplant that says grown in Holland. They flew it here. Right. So, I mean, I mean, it not unique. I'm sure this is what makes local growers everywhere pull their hair out, you know, it's was like, and so like, that's the value that I saw of even like, kind of like going a little bit bigger on the whole greenhouse thing. Cause honestly, I, what, we did get to the point where we were sick of like doing farmer's markets and our best, you know, day of the year, there's a huge thunderstorm and nobody comes to the farmer's market or something like that. Mm. Cause like we were so yeah. jazzed about farmer's markets in the beginning. And I, it, by the end, I was like, actually, I think I'd, I'd like doing some wholesaling. So I, if anything I've learned is that I haven't given up that dream. I've just realized it doesn't all have to happen at the same time. I still think I'm going to build that greenhouse. In fact, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot because, you know, for the last seven years that I've been doing growing for market, I mean, growing is growing for market has gotten most of my time. You know I mean? I had that conversation with Annie when we, we decided we were going to take over growing for market. In fact, I mean, that, year 2015, 2016 was a huge year for us because we, I took over for growing for market. I, I, it's, we basically have his and hers businesses because I told her, I was like, all right, well, if we take over growing for market, I don't know how much time it's going to take. I don't know how much time I can, I can't promise you any time because I don't know how much time I'll have. You know, if we take over the growing for market, it's going to be our livelihood in, in addition to thousands of people who get it, who we have to do right by them. You know, we have to give them, we have to do right by this business. I have no idea how much time it's going to take me. And so, you know, I really put it to her because she was the one all those years that I was working at Johnny's, she was the one on the farm full time managing the apprentices and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so that's why I left it up to her. I was like, well, it's, I'm going to leave it up to you, whether we keep doing the commercial produce or not or focus on something else. And it just so happened. So that 2015, 2016 year was a huge year of change for us because Annie got approached by a really longtime grower here in Maine, Amy LeBlanc. She has a farm called White Hill Farm. In fact, she had been our organic certifier for many years, which is funny because she was very... I thought of her as a very strict certifier, but she must've liked what she's seen because she ended up offering really Annie to take over her business. Cause she was getting to a point, I think she's still doing it, but she was kind of locally famous. Like I think of her as the main tomato lady, because there's, we also have a, w- there's a business here in Maine. In fact, they advertise and growing for market called the main potato lady, good place to get seed potatoes. So I thought of Amy LeBlanc as the main, the main tomato lady. Cause she had this farm that was really famous for all the, the varieties that she grew for a nursery. You know, she's the kind of place where you would go and have all these heirloom tomatoes and heirloom like heirloom peppers and just like all the varieties that you like a sort of like standard average nursery doesn't have. And so she asked Annie if she would like to take her out-of-the-area customers. And so Annie decided to say yes to that. And so we both took on new businesses. And so on Annie's side of things, she really, I think it was more like, I could be wrong, but I think it was more like a a customer list because Amy Amy had this really loyal customer for her seedlings because she, she had all these varieties that people couldn't get elsewhere. Like people come out of state still. And so what Annie decided to do was to take that business and stop doing the commercial produce and do the seedlings. So now she has a business called Seedlings by Annie, where she, so she took because we always did a strong seedling. We always did a big nursery because you know we live out in a rural area, and so we figure well, if we always figured well, if people won't buy the produce from us, then maybe we can sell them the seedlings. And so said yes to Amy and took over her seedling business essentially, and, and out of that made Seedlings by Annie. In fact, she's out there right now selling, you know, with the greenhouse open, selling seedlings. And so I mean, a part of me really does miss growing commercial produce and wants to get back from it but if anything I've learned like I've realized I really have gotten back from being really burned out like that period of taking over growing for market and writing those three books I got really burned out in fact Annie Annie sent me this podcast I think I might have told you about it but it might have been off the air. She sent me this podcast, uh, an episode of this podcast called We Can Do Hard Things. Another good podcast if people are looking. This episode about burnout. And at first I was so burned out. I was like, why are you sending me a podcast about being burned out? I'm burned out. I don't want to listen to it. But I was like, well, I should listen to it. And so it was some really good ideas that I've been trying to put into to practice. And I mean mainly just that like we all have stress in our lives and their analogy is that stress is like mental trash. We all have stress from whatever source. Over time, it builds up. We have to have a way of taking out the trash. You know, whether it's something really relaxing, you want to go like take a bath with like rose petals on the tub or whatever. Like when you want to go out, do something like running, that's my thing but you know the point is is that all those years of like going straight from starting a farm to moving our farm having kids like there was some point that a lot of probably young farmers and young business people are in where they're just working all the time but you can't do that forever and so you know that's i feel like lately I'm getting to a better place as far as finding a better balance. And part of that is saying no to something. For example, I still want to build that greenhouse. I was almost ready to leap back into it. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm achieving a better balance, you know, as far as balancing work with family, friends and all those kinds of things, right? Like I'm getting close to a bet, like what might be considered a decent balance for what feels like the first time in years for the first time in years. And, and what I'm, I'm going to go like start up another enterprise. So because we would have to build a greenhouse, we'd have to build, i probably build housing and stuff like that. So I think if anything I've learned is to take a little bit more of the long view. For example, I think how I would have done it if I were younger, go out, try to build, borrow the money to build the greenhouse, borrow the money to build worker housing and just do it all at once and run the risk of getting really burned out again. And you know, like if it doesn't go well, losing the business, you know, if it, if it didn't go well. And so now I'm thinking like, Well, well, there are property here in Maine. There's a couple of properties right close to us that I think are going to come up for sale here in the near future. And I thought, well, they're just like little properties with a trailer on them. And so I was thinking like, what I should do is wait, bide my time, buy one of those properties. My kids are young. Don't try to do everything at once. I can, you know, like wait for them to get a little bit older, enjoy their childhood and then try to finance this other business. And so I think that's it. At least for me, when I was young, it, like looking back on myself when I was younger, it's like it all had to happen at once, you know, as like I felt like there's no waiting. So that's how I'm trying to just get get a better balance in it. At the same time, keep things going and do things that I want to do is say like, you know what, it doesn't all happen to happen today or even this year is That I can build a greenhouse at any time, and so you know, the last thing I really wanted to say is uh, is, is kind of like a moment in time thing. It's in, I recently listened because I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and listening to a lot of books on tape. So, I listened to, recently listened to this book called Sapiens by Noah Harari. Yeah, you know that one, okay? Mm-hmm. Just really briefly, I want to say it was a great book, I recommend it to people. I thought it was interesting. And so the, the thing about it is it kind of sucker punched me is because, well, you've read it. So, you know, like, basically it's sort of like a quick, quick history of humanity. And so like most of the book, I'm almost like following along. It's almost like telling me things I kind of know of like development, of development of cuneiform, development of money. You know, it's like, you're kind of like that part was very interesting. But then right at the end, he takes this turn and talks about you know, how technology things are happening and changing and developing with us and our influence on the world faster than ever at any time before. And he goes from talking about these very settled development of writing kind of things to talking about how like people have the ability to clone mammoths and have talked about maybe like we could bring neanderthals back and you know like he takes this turn from like really solid settled history into genetic modification and what is the implication of integrating it's like cyborg stuff, you know, like integrating chips, like all this kind of stuff that we're really like one step away from with AI and all the like, 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 okay, you've got your Google glasses that are like smart glasses and like, well, what happens when they implant a chip in your brain and then it's just in your eyes and all this kind of stuff. And I think he, he made the point that in the 1960s, People thought we'd be like living in cities on the moon and stuff, and none of that happened. So I think he's not trying to be an alarmist. What I think what he's trying to say is we need to be deliberate and really consider our choices. And so as an agriculture person, I took that to mean we can't just be like, oh, chemicals and genetic modification are the the quickest way to, to make the most stuff. So that's what you should do. I'm saying I think we need to be really deliberate about our choices. And I think that in many ways, that's what small farming is, is because it's like, you don't necessarily have to buy finance, a huge tractor and pay a lot of money to the chemical companies and stuff like that. You know, it's like, if you can run your own business, you can make it any way that you want to be. And then you can be very deliberate about it. So I just think that that's kind of what that's kind of our, our audience is people who are being deliberate about agriculture and we need to be because if we just take the thing that's most expedient or the cheapest, we may not like what we get. I mean, it's like uh, in the first part of this interview, we talked about the SAD, right? The standard American diet. It's like, I hear people say like, the United States, we've got the cheapest food in the world. Secondly, maybe, but it's all subsidized and it's terrible and it's making people sick. So probably most of the people listening to the podcast are deliberate farmers they're probably farming the way they have because either it's the way they enjoy or because they kind of like me when i realized what was sprayed all over all the food realized that there's some really bad things going on in sort of like the conventional ways that that things are done so if you're listening to this podcast that's probably bravo to you it probably means you're being a deliberate farmer but i think it's so important because obviously we are diminishing the capacity of the planet to keep supporting us and so it's only going to take deliberate thinking about how to do this right to remedy that. And so if you're here listening to us, thank you. It's very important. And we need, obviously, we, we got a lot of work still to do.
0: Awesome. I think we should end on that note, Andrew. Thank you so much for sharing your story as told through farming to quote a title of a book my story as told by water by david james duncan this is the my story as told through farming (laughs) version because i'm sure we could have a million more interviews about other parts of andrew mefford but we wanted to know about the farming parts and the magazine parts and again just a shout out to everybody listening this was a conversation between your two co-hosts or main co-hosts anyway for this podcast. So hopefully you enjoyed getting to know Andrew. There was another podcast earlier where Andrew interviewed me so you can get to know who I am. And we do want to hear from you. If you have thoughts about the topics we're talking about, both feedback to us or ideas for future episodes, please reach out to one or both of us because we have a lot of weeks ahead of us. And like Andrew said, we both have a long list of people to interview. But I think this podcast is going to be even stronger when we get as many different voices as possible, just like Andrew was talking about in the magazine. We want these to be podcasts that can be relevant to many, many different people. So thank you, Andrew. I hope you have a great day. And thank you all for listening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We want to hear from the people. And uh, thanks so much for bearing with me. Great.
0: Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growing for Market podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider giving us a follow and a rating or review. It really helps others find the podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market magazine for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. If you're not familiar with us, you can request a free print or digital sample from our website, growingformarket.com. And the next time you're in the market for farm tools, don't forget to visit our podcast collaborator, Never Sync Farm, for the best in farm tools designed and made by farmers at neversinktools.com.